Sorry about that. I got someone else to uh, log me in. Oh, good, good. Um, so, in, in case, I, I just want to kind of go over the format real quick. We have developed a little bit of an intro, and that's already pre-recorded. So okay. I'm just going to start out with um, like introducing you, and the one-page bio that you sent me was perfect. It's going to take me probably a minute and a half, to maybe two and a half minutes to read through it. Okay. And then if you want to comment on one, one or two aspects of your bio, that's, that's great. That's fine. And then we'll move into the questions that I had sent to you. I had like six, six sort of generic questions about that are specific to school crisis. Okay. I'm going to also just in, in every one of the podcasts, of course, you're, you're the third one, but in every one of the podcasts, I want to just make sure that if, it, if there's a new listener that they know, you know where I'm at and what I'm, why I'm doing this. So I may comment, too, about the fact that we are I'm at Western Connecticut State University and I'm close to Newtown, and we're doing, we've been doing this as a response to the school shootings there. Does that make sense? That sounds good. Good. So let's go ahead and get started then. Um, okay. So welcome to the School Crisis Podcast. Today I'm with Dr. David Schoenfeld. Dr. Schoenfeld is, is a developmental behavioral pediatrician and director of the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement located at the University of Southern California School of Social Work. He's a professor of practice in the, in the School of Social Work and Pediatrics at the University of uh, Southern California in the Children's Hospital of, of Los Angeles. He's got many achievements, including uh, membership in the American Academy of Pediatrics Disaster Preparedness Advisory Council. He was a commissioner for both the National Commission on Children and Disasters and the Sandy Hook Advisory Commission in Connecticut, president of the Society uh, for the Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics from 2006 to 2007. And, and Dr. Schoenfeld established the School Crisis Response Program in 1991 when he was faculty at Yale University in the School of Medicine in that role, he provided uh, training to tens of thousands of school-related personnel in school systems throughout the country and abroad, and provided technical assistance to hundreds of school crisis events. He consulted with the New York City Department of Education to optimize their infrastructure within the system for crisis preparedness and response, and to provide training and technical assistance in the aftermath of events of uh, September 11, 2001, which included training approximately a 1,000 school district um, and school-level crisis teams. In 2005, Dr. Schoenfeld was awarded funding from the September 11th Children's Fund and the National Philanthropic Trust to establish a National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. Funding from the uh, New York Life Foundation is, has allowed the center to provide ongoing expansion, expanded services at USC. The goal of the National Center is to promote the appreciation and role schools can serve to support students, staff, and families at times of crisis and loss, to collaborate with organizations and agencies to further this goal, and to serve as a resource for information, training materials, consultation, and technical assistance. And Dr. Schoenfeld's got a, 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 quite a number of scholarly contributions, including authoring over 100 scholarly books, book chapters, articles, and so forth and over 850 presentations on topics related to pediatric bereavement and crisis. He's also conducted school-based research funded by, uh, by a variety of, of, um, of different agencies and philanthropic organizations involving children's understanding of and adjustment to serious illness and death and school-based interventions to promote adjustment and risk uh, prevention. So welcome, Dr. Schoenfeld. What a pleasure to have you with me today. It's good to be with you. 
So I, I, I developed this podcast about a year ago, and, and um, what we what, um, primarily in response to um, the shootings here in Sandy Hook. Um, I'm sure you're, you, you may be aware that Western Connecticut State University is only a few miles from, from Newtown. And part of the service that I do here in, the, in teaching in the counseling program is to do some scholarly material. And this is one of the things that I do, the podcast. So I'm just delighted to have you with us and um, wanted to get started with some of the uh, discussion now. So maybe we'd like to start with some of your, your personal side. Maybe tell me a little bit about um, where you grew up and um, maybe what helped to lead you into, the, into the, the field of work that you practice in. Sure. Most of my childhood was actually spent on Long Island. Um, and so I, and most of my training was also in the Northeast, as well as most of the time I spent in my career. So um, my, my really uh, upbringing has been kind of not very far from where you're located. Mm. Um, and I was at Yale for 16 years so uh, as faculty member, so I'm quite familiar with Connecticut. In terms of how I got into this area, I was, it was more just volunteering. I was in my first year of my fellowship, and there was an active program in providing bereavement support. It was focused around um, families that had experienced the death of an infant through sudden infant death syndrome, but they also provided more broadly uh, support around pediatric bereavement. And they were looking for a volunteer to go and speak at a school uh, that had requested a, present, a presentation. Um, and I think the people who were normally part of the program weren't available. Hmm. So I offered to go out and, and talk to the children. Um, there were The circumstances was there were three children who had experienced the death of a parent uh, through natural causes, mm -hmm. and they were unrelated events. And the school just wanted to provide some, some kind of support and assistance to their elementary school uh, students. Um, by the time I went out and did the presentation, I think the school misunderstood, and they thought it was a model program. So they actually had it done as an assembly, and they invited um, parents to come in. Um, and they also invited the press. And as a result, um, I ended up getting calls throughout the city. This was in Baltimore. Whenever there were students who had, ex who had died uh, suddenly um, or if there had been accidents or other crisis events, and I would go out and help the school try and respond to that. Um, and that's when I then decided to do my research in that area and then focused more of my efforts moving forward. Wow, wow. What an interesting start to, the, uh, to, to your work in the field. It sounds like you were, you were getting into the field at a time when, you were, um, when there was a whole, not a lot of resources available to you. Uh, there wasn't a lot of activity in that area. So actually one of the first articles that I wrote was during my fellowship training. I wrote an article for clinical pediatrics about the role of a pediatrician in supporting schools when there's been a death. Um, it's actually one of the few articles that I got accepted without any changes. Um, and the editor uh, wrote an interesting comment, which they put in a box on the article, something to the effect of most pediatricians would never consider this part of their role, but perhaps pediatricians are better suited to do this than anyone else. So it was this sense of um, it isn't really what pediatricians generally are asked to do, but perhaps we should reconsider that. So it's interesting now, many years later, um, several decades later, um, I'm now the first author on a clinical guidance document for the American Academy of Pediatrics 
on how to support grieving children, talking more about uh, the role of pediatricians in trying to help children who are their patients and in the community as well, uh, and schools on dealing with bereavement issues. So it's really been kind of, you know, 25 to 30 years of um, the same kind of uh, activities although now I direct a center as opposed to being a first-year fellow who started to do the work. Well, fascinating. It kind of really, really leads nicely into, into my next question. Um, so from your experience, what are, what are some of the key elements that, that school crisis um, or school safety responders have to, have to do to maximize their support for victims um, and, and to care for the first and second responders who, who are there in a crisis situation? So I, I think if you're, I think there's an increased attention now to the fact that a uh, crisis that occurs within the school uh, has an impact on the children and the staff, and that uh, schools need to figure out how to respond to those situations in a way that can provide support and assistance. Now, I think that recognition is mainly around events that are um, unusual events, that happen within the school itself, like a school shooting, for example. I don't think there's quite as much recognition that crisis events that happen in the lives of children in their homes and in their communities have an impact on their learning and their capacity to be able to thrive in a school setting, and that the school also needs to intervene and provide support in that area. Um, and then I think we've given some attention to um, the impact of trauma on children, but we've given less attention to the impact of loss um, and bereavement specifically um, for children as well as for adults uh, in school settings. So in terms of what we need to do, I think we need to broaden um, our understanding of the impact of crisis and loss on children and adult staff in school settings. And then we also have to think through how to better prepare um, not only our mental health staff in school settings, which are pretty limited in numbers, um, but also just to prepare all of the staff that are working in school settings to be better able to provide support and assistance. And that's part of what we're trying to do in the center. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know what, a lot of the, the clinical work that I do in the community as a liaison to schools on this topic, I've seen really, like you're saying, an increased awareness and, and, but I think the problem that, that a lot of the directors would, would, would tell you they see is where do we draw the line, you know, as a public school, you know, providing clinical services to, to children who have experienced grief, loss, tra or trauma. You know, w maybe you could talk a little bit about how to, how, wh how to, how to best approach uh, um, some of the clinical issues that, that we might see in schools. Sure. Um, what I try and explain to people is that a lot of our efforts are on trying to figure out how to make sure that school um, professionals, such as classroom educators, are in the position to provide support to children who are grieving. Now, that's very different than providing clinical services or therapy. We're not asking um, classroom educators in particular to provide clinical services because it's not a clinical position. And they don't have that clinical training. But the issue is that if a child is grieving, say they've had an immediate loss of a peer that they're close with or a family member, they often are struggling in school and meeting a number of, or trying to meet a number of challenges in adjusting to that loss 
and still continuing on with their other expectations. And you need a teacher to be supportive and empathic and to make some practical and, and relatively simple accommodations in their schedule and in their supports so that they can be successful. What happens is a lot of teachers just say, well, you know, we've never been trained in this. We're not comfortable. We're, you know, we're, first they'll say, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to upset them if I bring it up. Well, I, I then respond to that by saying, well, if you ask a child how they're feeling about the death of someone they care about and they start crying, they're not crying because of the question. Uh, they're crying because they're grieving. Um, you've just given them an invitation to show them how, they're, how they were feeling beforehand or to show you how they were feeling beforehand. You're not actually causing the distress. So people will say, okay, well, I can understand that, um, but what if I say the wrong thing and I just make matters worse? Um, so it's probably better that I don't say anything if I'm, a, you know, that way I won't say the wrong thing. But I think if you don't say anything, it kind of communicates to children that either you, you're unaware, you don't care, or you're not capable or willing to provide support. And those are, that says a lot to children, and it, it's, it's all a bad message. So I think that we really need to be able to help teachers feel comfortable enough so that they can reach out to children, they can tell them that they're there for them and that they care, and that they will, they'll work with them not to provide them counseling or therapy uh, necessarily uh, in the school setting, but that they'll at least work with them to try and help them um, do well in school while they're grieving. Now, there may be uh, school mental health professionals who can provide some of those services, um, or there may be community-based groups that may be able to provide some of those services in school settings. But a lot of what we're trying to do through the work of our center is really focusing on just creating a supportive um, classroom and school environment where children who are grieving or who are experiencing trauma um, can feel supported and nurtured. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. You know, when you can get teachers aware of it, then you build capacity in, in, in all of the frontline workers, the people who are interacting daily with the, with the students, and that's probably much more powerful than, than any other intervention that you could, uh, you could develop. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears now. Uh, what, what are some common clinical uh, or errors? When I say clinical errors, it, you don't have to focus on the clinical piece, but I'm, you know, I think that when there's a school crisis situation, clinicians will often respond, you know, sometimes for community-based clinicians and sometimes for school-based mental health clinicians. What are kind, some kinds of things that you think that we need to be cautious of and try to avoid whenever there's a, what, there's a crisis situation at a school? I think the first thing is that there's a tendency um, to either not recognize that a certain event has had an impact on children or to believe that um, those events may have had impact, but it's outside of the scope, uh, the responsibility, or the right of the school to try and provide assistance. So uh, as an example, when uh, September 11th uh, happened, um, I was actually at Yale at the time and living in a community in Connecticut that was within commuting distance to New York City. Um, in fact, my, one of my daughter's uh, friends, her mother worked in the World Trade Center. So this is a community that was deeply impacted. And when the event occurred, 
the elementary school that my younger daughter attended only went up to fourth grade, and they decided that it would be best not to say anything uh, to the students. Mm -hmm. So they actually blocked all incoming calls and visitors. Um, A number of parents did pick up their children that day, but the children were asked to, you know, they were called and told to come to the office and bring their things, and they weren't permitted to go back to class. So the message actually didn't get delivered to the students that anything unusual happened that day. So my daughter found out when she was home alone and her older sister told her, which is obviously not the best way to find out about this. Mm-hmm. And so then um, the school didn't feel that they should say anything to the kids. Now, it was a wonderful school. The principal was very empathic and supportive, and, and she actually called me that night, and I went in and did a presentation for the teachers the following morning, um, and then they went in and talked with the students. But my daughter, who was you know about nine at the time, picked up on that right away, and, and she just said to me later, you know, I knew that something was going on because I saw the teachers hugging each other, but obviously they didn't feel comfortable talking to the children about that. And she just said to me, I'll never talk about it with my teachers or in school. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, dear, you can talk with them. And she said, no, I can't. Uh, they've made it very clear they're not comfortable. I'll talk to you and Mom. I have enough. I can get my support that way. But I just will never talk with anyone in school about it. So it delivers a very powerful message that the school's not interested, not capable, not ready, or not comfortable. Even though she had a wonderful teacher, and it actually was a very supportive school. But then a couple of weeks later, um, they had open school night. So as a parent, I went to the open school night, and they just mentioned something briefly in passing about the fact that they wanted, you know, the, this, the principal wanted to thank the teachers for being so helpful at a time of need. But she didn't say anything more than that, um, and then. Um, she started to read a book, because that was how she always started, um, open school night in the elementary school. And then she just mentioned that the teachers were going to go back to the classrooms and wondered if, if um, the parents had any questions before she dismissed the parents to go meet with the teachers. But she needed to give the teachers some time to get to the classroom first. So there was only one question, and a parent raised her hand and asked what they were doing about 9-11 to support the kids. And as soon as the principal got that invitation, then she started telling everyone in the audience about all the things that they were doing, that they had an in-service training on it, that the teachers had a plan, that they were working out a strategy to help the children. And, but she didn't feel she had the right to mention any of that because she thought that the parents would think that was an intrusion on their personal lives. Mm-hmm. At which point the parents just said, thank you, we really need that help. There was nobody who was upset. They were looking for the school to provide some assistance and support. The community was overwhelmed, but there seems to be the sense that they don't want to. In- schools don't want to intrude um, on the personal issues that affect children and families. So that's, I think, the first thing. First mistake people make is they think that they're not supposed to do anything or say anything. That that will be seen as intrusive. Um, then I think the, one of the other mistakes that people make is that um, they only deal with part of the issue. Um, and in particular, they may deal with a crisis event, but not recognize that bereavement is also an issue. There tends to be, for some reason, in our society, this view that 
bereavement is a normative experience and that um, any reactions uh, that you get from that are what you would expect and um, people, children in particular, are resilient and they'll adjust to that and they don't need or benefit from any assistance. Whereas if they experience a traumatic event, well then any reactions they have to that might fit into the category of you know, post-traumatic reactions and we see that more as, an, as a mental illness or a disorder, or we refer to those as symptoms. But in bereavement, we don't refer to them as symptoms of bereavement, we just refer to them as reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, so trauma is often uh, diagnosed and treated by mental health professionals. Health insurance pays for that. Um, but bereavement, is, bereavement support is generally provided by lay or faith-based uh, individuals and groups and it's not billable and not reimbursable under health insurance. But if you talk with someone who's been through, say, an accident or had some other traumatic experience, what you will often hear them say are, well, you know, it was really bad, but at least no one died. Mm-hmm. But then when someone dies, we say, well, that's just a normative experience, so we don't have to help them with that. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really make sense to me, but I think what I have seen in multiple situations is that there will be major crisis events and everyone looks for trauma symptoms and disorders, which you do need to look for and those are completely, um, it's, it's very important to kind of identify those and, and treat those. But they ignore the bereavement side of it as if it's somehow not necessary um, or even worthy of attention. Um, and I think that's another common uh, error that people make. Wow. So yeah, you talked about about it addressing crisis and trauma as intrusive, and then also the other errors is is the bereavement is is overlooking bereavement. Do you th- over your career do you feel like that that those issues are improving? That that school leaders are and school helpers are are are, are making progress in addressing these issues, or is it s- considered? Is it still a still a sort of stagnant <laughs> in the field? Well, I think there's been some progress. I mean, the, the reason for creating a national center for school crisis and bereavement was consciously to try and bridge those fields in those areas. Um, I still think they're pretty separate, um, and sometimes the attention is not given uh, to bereavement in situations after crisis events. Um, but we are trying to make headway in, in making sure that school professionals in particular are better aware of the needs of grieving students. So one of the projects that we've worked on uh, that's been supported by the New York Life Foundation is to create a coalition to support grieving students. And what we've done is brought together um, the two major teachers unions, uh, the American Federation for Teachers and the NEA. Um, We've also brought together four school principals, administrators, and superintendents organizations, so the National Association for Elementary School Principals, the National Association for Secondary School Principals, the School Superintendents Association, the American Federation of School Administrators, and then the major organizations that deal with school social workers, uh, school nurses, school counselors, and school psychologists. And all 10 of those professional organizations, which together represent about over 4.5 million members, 
have worked to develop materials um, under the Coalition to Support Grieving Students where they've all been endorsed and logoed by all of those organizations. And those materials, um, training materials and documents, can be found at grievingstudents.org. It's opened, you know, it's freely available. Um, anybody, you know, listening can go and view those materials. We have over 20 uh, different modules. Um, they tend to be about 10 to 15 minute video-based um, training uh, and professional development um, topics. Uh, so, for example, if you want to learn more about how to support children in a funeral, how to deal with commemoration, memorialization, what's the role of social media in, in supporting grieving children, how do you deal with school crisis events, how do you deal with suicide, we have over 20 topics. Um, and to create those videos, we interviewed children, um, their parents, um, as well as school professionals from across the country, edited those down to, to bring out the major points. There's kind of a mini presentation that I provide. Um, and then there's a, a print summary that can also be downloaded of that material. So we're trying to get, that was launched about a year ago, um, and we're trying you know, to get that information out more broadly in the field, um, in all of those different school professional fields, um, with the aim of trying to elevate their comfort in dealing with grieving students. Yeah, you know, personally, I've seen the site, but I haven't been there in a while. It sounds like it's quite a gold mine, and it's, it sounds like it's, it's, it's pretty robust. There is a lot there, and we're adding more materials to it uh, as we go over time. We, we just uh, developed a particular module for COPS. That's Concerns of Police Survivors. So that's a group that tries to support children after they've experienced the death of a family member in the line of duty as a police officer. Um, so we kind of created a document that highlights some of the unique challenges uh, and issues that face those children, <clears throat> it, but that also refers back to the materials that's on the website. Um, and some of the newer materials that we've developed have not yet been added to grievingstudents.org and can be found at schoolcrisiscenter.org. Uh, and Great. that's the website for the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. So I'm going to shift gears here once again. You know, the, the, the main focus of my team here and, and, and of, our, of our podcast really is, is for school-based helpers. But I, I, I recognize that, that we've got a lot of community-based helpers who respond. And sometimes it's not just helpers, but also parents, you know, can support schools when they're, when they're in crisis or when there's, when they're, when there's grief. Um, and other community members and community organizations um, can help. So, uh, are there things that you can that you recognize that 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 that, that uh, other organizations can do to help uh, to either protect or to respond to students when they are when they're in crisis situations? Sure. A lot of the work that I do is also with different groups, whether it's with uh, you know foster parents, um, uh, first responders other community-based groups. Um, and so a lot of the material that you'll find at grievingstudents.org or at schoolcrisiscenter.org um, are, are applicable really to the broader community. We've developed psychological first aid documents that can be used in developing countries. We've developed material 
for parents and other caregivers on how to support their own children um, who are grieving. So, uh, you know, our, our goal is really to make everyone who is in a position to support children better able to support them when they're grieving or trying to recover from a traumatic event. Um, and a lot of my work is also, for example, with healthcare providers. Um, I just spoke at a nursing conference uh, this past weekend, for example, in Connecticut. Um, and I was at a, um, a conference yesterday speaking in Michigan um, that was to an audience that dealt with first responders, public health officials, as well as school professionals. Really, it was a conference on dealing with school crisis events. So I, I think we need to make sure that our broad communities um, are in, that really all of the professionals and lay people in those communities are better able to support children in whatever role they already have um, when they're interacting with kids. Yeah, it seems like that the key is really interdisciplinary training that that healthcare professionals and first responders and teachers and parents and you know a lot of different you know people with different expertise collaborating together can really um, make significant progress in, in 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 responding to school crisis and preventing school crisis events. Well, anybody who interacts with a child or a family member after a crisis or loss has the potential to be a source of support. They also have the potential if they're insensitive or particularly, um, you know, they're not empathic and they don't consider the needs, they may actually make matters worse. So it's really important that everyone um, increase their ability to both um, detect when a child is responding or reacting to uh, a challenge in their lives and that they know how to help them um, to whatever degree they can um, in understanding and coping with that event. We, we also need to be able to identify individuals who are struggling and refer them on for additional resources and support. Um, and then, of course, we also need to think about how to promote um, resiliency in children and how to promote mental health. Uh, there, there's a tendency in our culture for some reason to believe that we need to teach children so that they develop their cognitive and academic and vocational skills, that we need to help them in becoming physically healthy. But for some reason, mental health, we assume, just occurs. But we, we can actually promote mental health and teach coping and resiliency skills. And through a lot of things that we, you know, as, as a group refer to as social and emotional learning, um, and we should be thinking about how we model and teach and promote that area of development as well. Wonderful. Great. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love what you're saying here. That kind of brings us to, to my last question. Um, what do you see for the future uh, for schools with regard to school safety and crisis response? Like, you're, you're in the field every day. Um, what do you see that's, that's, on, the, that's on the horizon well, I think there are a couple areas. Uh, one is that people are understandably trying to figure out how to anticipate, anticipate and to the extent possible prevent uh, future events. Um, I think that for some of the school crisis events, the solutions are really going to require societal changes um, and shifting of priorities um, so that we 
don't just try and preserve liberties, but we also think about how to preserve safety. And balancing those competing needs, I think, are going to be a real challenge. Um, I also think we do need to invest more in promoting social and emotional learning in children um, so that we're not just responding to problems after they've been created, but that we're also thinking about how to advance and promote strengths um, and resiliency in children. Um, one of the challenges that I have seen is that there's been a lot of emphasis on academic productivity um, and that school professionals are being judged um, about their success in their careers based on how well children do on standardized testing. And as a result, there's been you know, this kind of laser focus on trying to help kids do well on, on test scores. And there, there was some movement in social-emotional learning that then got challenged by concerns that taking time away from promoting academic growth um, was, you know, something that couldn't be tolerated and that there was a trade-off. Either, you know, you advance their social and emotional health or you help them get good scores and that uh, right now they were focusing on good scores. Well, I actually did a research project um, that was in Connecticut and um, we used a large urban school system and schools were randomized to get enhanced social and emotional learning or to have less attention to that area. And what we found, not only didn't the scores go down in the schools that had the social-emotional learning, but actually they went up. Mm. Um, and that we were able to demonstrate that the schools that were randomized to get the enhanced social-emotional learning actually had um, better uh, state mastery test scores, particularly among the children who were um, kind of in the lowest levels of uh, academic success. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's kind of clear to us that when you invest in social and emotional learning, you actually improve the classroom environment, the, connect, the connections between the children and the teachers, that the teachers learn more how to manage their classroom, that they spend less time dealing with disruptions within the classroom, and, and the children are more on task and more able to learn and that that then in social problem-solving skills actually help them with academic uh, problem-solving as well. So we were able to demonstrate that and also show that there was a dose effect, that the kids that got more of the lessons did better uh, in terms of their mastery tests as well. So I think we need to now challenge that view that um, social and emotional learning competes with academics it actually bolsters academics, and that's increasingly being shown around the country. So hopefully that will be the next uh, movement forward, is to think more holistically about education and promoting well-being of children in school settings. Well, well said, well said. I, you know, it really reinforces Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think. You know, with, when kids are, feel safe at school, when safety is a basic need, that they will perform better up that pyramid, you know, which would be their academics in school, they'll, they'll do better in their testing, they'll, they'll perform better in their day-to-day in their -day classroom activities. Correct. Well, I appreciate your time today. It's just it's such a pleasure to speak with you and to, and to, to share your, your, your knowledge and your experience with, the, with the, the group of people who listen to this podcast. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad you were able to cover the topic. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Dr. Schoenfeld, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. I just wanted to kind of give a little closure piece right there. Um, 
it's interesting. I, it, were you said when you were you were at a nursing conference? Were you that was that here in Connecticut? Uh, yeah, it was in Mystic. Okay, my um, department chair emailed me and she said she needs to meet with me because one of the nursing faculty wanted to talk to me about school safety. So I have a feeling that she probably attended your conference. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it was the New England Regional School Nurse Conference. I think that was what it was called. And I actually spoke on bereavement. Okay. It was on supporting grieving students. It was on Sunday, Sunday morning in Mystic. Yeah, yeah. I got the email Monday afternoon. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Sure. And I appreciate all the resources you've given me. And um, I hope that one day our paths will cross and we'll, 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 we'll connect. In, in that would be great. Thanks, Thanks so, much. so much. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <clears throat> okay, great.